Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. We're going back to 1997 today on Roland Garros Relived for a very special win for a very special man. Somebody, frankly, we'd hardly heard of when he came into the tournament. Is that fair to say, Catherine? Matt, had you... I don't even know whether you were alive yet, Matt. You were just about alive, but I mean, you certainly couldn't remember anything, let alone the French Open. I was I was alive, but I think I'd heard of my mum and my dad and my sister. <laughs> right. Okay, Catherine, had you ever heard of uh, Gustavo Curtin from Brazil? Well, I can't. I can't recall. I mean, I that was ninety seven was pre me getting into tennis. I was still grumpy about tennis because it was my brother's sport. Um, so I was still a couple of years off uh, being on the precipice of being a tennis nerd. Um, but if his final opponent, Sergi Bruguera, hadn't really heard of him coming in, then I rather suspect that uh, none of the rest of us had, or if we claim to have, uh, then we'll be lying. What, what about you? I mean, it's probably more that questions more pertinent f- for you because yeah. you're or right. older than us. Yeah, that's true. I am. Um, <laughs> and I was in my second year at Queen's as a, as a runner. I was part of the media team. I'd been given a chance to work in tennis for the first time. I was still at university and I was following tennis all the time. And yet I had barely heard of him, to be honest. And when I arrived at Queen's for, for the few days before the tournament, Guga was making his way through the draw uh, in Paris and people were starting to tell me about this guy. You've got to see him. You've got to watch what he's doing. And so I started to take notice, like everybody else did. We're going to hear from Gustavo Curtin here on the Tennis Podcast today. We're going to hear from the man he beat in the final, Sergio Bruguera. We're going to hear from Chris Clary from the New York Times, who was there covering that event. But Let's get our own impressions of that time and tell that story 
ourselves with the help of those people because it was one of the great stories even even if the final that we've just witnessed wasn't an all-time classic there were some some real belters along the way but it was just his whole story he was a very 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 special individual and somebody who's really carved a place in a lot of people's hearts that love and watch tennis and and um will never be forgotten in 1997 no matter what now in that year Princess Diana had died. Mother Teresa had died. Mike Tyson made headlines for biting Evander Holyfield's ear during a fight. Harry Potter began. And Alexander Zverev and Naomi Osaka were born. A few little tidbits from 1997. Right. When you say Harry Potter be- began... Yeah. Philosopher's Stone was was released was was thought published, of published, was, was written about was published right published. Don't need to do that again. Good, goodness, <laughs> you didn't mention uh, you didn't mention Greg Rosetsky reaching a Grand no, Slam final, but that also happened later on though. You know that's that's ha- that happened afterwards. But yes, he he played uh, par after. So at the French <laughs> Open in 1997. The field featured the last three champions, Sergi Bagheera, Thomas Muster and Yevgeny Kofelnikov. Pete Sampras was the world number one and Alex Karetcha came in as John McEnroe's pick for the title. It's safe to say that nobody was talking about the 20-year-old Gustavo Curtin. He'd never reached an ATB final, let alone won a tournament, let alone a Grand Slam tournament. He was ranked 66 in the world and had just lost in the first round to Richard Fromberg in the first round in Hamburg. Flew home immediately in disgust, saying he needed to get away from it all, go back to his home in Florianapolis in Brazil. But he only went for a week and just enough time to win a challenger tournament there. Flew back, came to Paris, and as he walked through the gates at Roland Garros, he says something happened. And my goodness, did something happen. He beat the 1995 champion Thomas Muster in five sets in round three. He beat Andre Medvedev, runner-up a couple of years later, also in five sets. Then Kafelnikov, the defending champion. And finally, two-time champion Sergi Bagheera in the final. When you reel it all off, Catherine, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? What he did, bit by bit, any one of those match wins, you could hope might see your way into the final of a Grand Slam. But he had to do three or four of them, and he had to do them back-to-back. Yeah, I I, I, um, I think at the, certainly at the time, I'm not sure if this has been done since, but at the time he was the only man that had beaten three former champions um, in, the same, in the same tournament. So, boy, did he do it the hard way. I think... <laughs> the only uh, the only person in the world who wouldn't uh, enjoy that uh, Guga Quirton story that you just told was Richard Fromberg who <laughs> doesn't emerge from it brilliantly does he so disgusted with himself for losing with Richard Fromberg that he flies across half the world, pl- world plays a challenger event as a warm-up for a slam I mean that's amazing in itself isn't it isn't it has anyone ever well, oh, oh, Matt might stats. know the answer to this. He's um, he's the only man to win a challenger and a slam in consecutive weeks. It's, oh, it's not, I guess, it's not quite it. consecutive because obviously a slam's two weeks. But as sort of back-to-back tournaments, he's the only man ever to do that. And you know, we talked about a record that Michael Chang has that could stand forever. That's certainly one that 
will be tough to replicate. And actually, for, for, from a Richard Fromberg's perspective, yeah, I, mean, I suppose he might say, <laughs> "Well, actually, I was the last, I was the only bloke who could beat him on clay." Yeah, I hope he views it that way. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's quite interesting that that I mean, it was it was first round straight sets Hamburg and Guga describes going with his coach Larry Passos to the practice court the next morning at 8:15 in the morning when it was raining and and practicing and suddenly starting to feel form coming the day after he just lost in the first round to to Richard Fromberg but but still feeling like he'd got to get away that he'd got to go home and just and and that's that is one of the things isn't it i mean he was so new to tour life and just the grind of going around the European clay court swing and, and being that far away from home and, and clearly just, just needed to get away from it all. And then he tells the story of once he got to Roland Garros practicing with Alex Correcture and being a set up on him in 20 minutes. And Alex Correcture comes up to him at the change of ends and says, if you keep playing like this, you haven't missed one, you'll win Roland Garros. Um that was that was quite a good call. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness you know how me, you, yeah. you, we were talking wow. the other day about Yannick Noah, and and you were saying at the point at that point you you don't really believe in fate, and and I and I tend to be the same, really. I mean, you get out what you put in, and yes, things need to come together, etc. But I mean, the way Curtin talks about it, you you will you would believe in magic the way he talks about it. So let's hear from him. I asked him how much he remembers of it 23 years on. David, if, if I start to talk, uh, it comes everything. from uh, The memories, it's fresh. I, I, I can feel the, the flavor. It happened more than being out there playing tennis. It's too emotional, very enthusiastic. It's all about uh, sentimental. You know? It's uh, much more than present past, future, it's here. If I need to talk to you about uh, the first match with Dozelio, or either Bjorkman, then the toughest one, Muster Medvedev, Kafelnikov. I remember going out to the court, what I need to do, the, the, all the crucial moments, first time in a Grand Slam, playing the court number one, big stadium, the biggest court I played in, in a tour level as well, against Muster. Former champion. This was more than enough. So king of clay from the time, uh, the most physical player uh, that the, on the tour to face. So for me, three zero in the in the fifth set. I, I could say, okay, I did uh, more than enough. When my my brother said, "Come on, Luga. you never give up," because I was complaining. Ah, oh, that's it. I can't take anymore. I'm too tired. Oh. No, no more chance. And he and he come up and cheer me up and said, Guga, you need to fight, man. And like this, I listened to him. I looked back and he, he's very gentle. He's very quiet. And I said, okay, let's go. We try more. And things start to happen. I, I came around uh, 3-0 and, uh, and we got the the match on, on uh, to put myself uh, with a chance to, to break him and and uh, I, it was the first moment the crowd, uh, Grand Slam event at Roland Garros, the, the French people start, Ale Guga, Ale Guga, that was uh, uh, like floating, you know, in the air. That they believed me that uh, a bit must, but this was the energy that I need. And uh, certainly I, I turned the game around. 
I broke him on 5-4 and I said, that's the way I knew it. And uh, I, I put myself on the, on the fourth round. Put himself in the fourth round. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about Google. I mean, our, our line, as you can hear, wasn't the greatest there. We, we spoke for, for quite a while and, and it was tough to, to, to always hear everything he was saying because of the line quality. But I understood everything he was saying he makes you feel everything he was going through it's 23 years on and he remembers all, every last detail everything he felt at the time and he was against the guy who just used to eat players for breakfast out there on a clay court and and there he was three love down against the mighty thomas muster in the fifth set and yeah his brother intervened i mean what a great story yeah, there's a there's a really um, nice sort of twenty minute documentary that the that the French Open tournament made about um, Gustavo Quirton a few years ago, um, and real focus on that match. And Quirton says that you know, and this is after he's long after he's retired. He says that Muster that day was was in the the top five most difficult players he's he's ever ever played against, and and that applied at the end of his career, and I'm, I'm sure it did at the time. Um, and that em- they show that embrace that he has with his with his brother immediately at the end of his match. His older brother Rafa, who I think their their father passed away when, well, Rafa was was eleven at the time in in the as they say in that uh, little documentary piece. So Google would have been a few years younger than that, and I think he sort of took on the the fatherly role in 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 the household. And oh, I, it it really gave me. Um, Gave me all the feels seeing that embrace between between the two brothers at the end of that match. Yeah, and and the next match he played was against Sandro Medvedev, and I think I'm right saying Matt that he he referenced how when he was on the court, and that was another five set epic. So these are two back to back five set epics against really established players, and he, you know he's such a newcomer to this kind of arena. And he he references feeling the presence of his father while he was on the court, and that it it comforted him and inspired him. Yeah, he said his father had dreamed of having a son as a tennis player, and he he really realised, well, that's me. That's what I'm doing now. And he felt his father's presence at the end. Um, and yeah, I think the Medvedev match was really dramatic as well because it was one that was carried over to the next day. It was stopped in the fifth set because of bad light. So they had to come back the next day, which always adds an extra element of drama and theatre to a match, um, which which Guga just seemed to lap up. I just think whenever I think of Quirton, a bit like what you said about Noah, he sort of evokes similar feelings. I just I just think of his great, big heart really whenever whenever i think of him the way he talks just just there the fact that when he won his third french open he drew that heart in the clay that's become a sort of iconic image and i just think with him it was it was his heart that held his fate in the matches and he played with his heart and he connected with people and obviously the way he talks about the influence of his father that's all just connected to what he's feeling out on the court and he had such strength of feeling that he was able to channel into victory and um i think that's something there's something magnetic about a tennis player who who has that quality about them and he tells this this really emotional evocative story of when he first felt the connection 
um, with Roland Garros as a tournament in in 1993 when he was playing it as a junior and he had been on the road in in Europe for a long time, obviously very far away from from home as a as a kid. Um, you know, the end of the kind of European clay court swing. Um, and he says, uh, I reached the quarterfinals of the juniors. It was his first year playing the juniors. And he says, I spent the entire week bugging the people at gate 13 to let me call home every night. <laughs> it wasn't usually allowed, but they made an exception for me. And by doing that, they really helped me. I was touched by how much understanding they had for my situation. So kind of that, that familial bond was created um between between Guga and Roland Garros at that time because they un- understood his bond with his with his home and with his with his family and oh yeah and he, he is one of those people that can connect with anybody from my experience i mean i i joined the the tour the atp tour as a communications manager a year later so 1998 he was a big a big deal, obviously, off the back of this uh, this triumph at the French Open, and uh, one of my jobs was to get him to do interviews. And he, he wasn't that confident, really, with with his English. And and I think that the, occasionally the, the the people around him, his coach Larry Passos, who he talks about so warmly, kind of wanted to protect him and not get him to do too many things because it is exhausting. But what I remember about Guga from back then is just how warm he was to to everybody to to just. I suppose you. I don't want to be too reductive, but to normal people, the the person who was who was standing in you know on security, and and for people like me who 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 weren't who were a pain in the neck really to a lot of tennis players because we were asking them to do stuff um, to promote the sports and that sort of thing. But he was just a lovely bloke. He was just so nice to you and and warm and and could communicate even though he didn't have the greatest language skills in english can we hear from him again please yeah you can (laughs) i want to hear his voice again (laughs) let's hear from him again uh this time talking about when he faced the defending champion yevgeny kafelnikov in the quarterfinals a match that he thought might be a bridge too far this was the one uh i couldn't convince myself that i had chance to win he was much too too much better than, than than me I was completely empty of hopes. So during the match, that uh, things start to happen. I, I really went out uh, very strong, and uh, I won first set six one. My mind mm, is not enough to to have hopes because he's still to come. His game is gonna uh, turn on, and and that's what happened. Uh, now I'm playing unbelievable, my best tennis, and he went uh, to the moon. He's just trying to to cruise over and and uh, doesn't miss a shot. And one seven five, two sets to one. I said, "Come on, this guy is." But somehow I I was already very relaxed. My name Aleguga, Aleguga. I said, "Okay, I will, I will take advantage of this. I will relax myself. I will play the best that I can uh, very easily, and nothing to lose." And somehow I start to dream and playing as was a, a dream. And I uh, feel that Kafelnikov was feeling a little bit tired. So this was the first hope that I had 
on the match after two hours in the court, two hours and a half, I I I found the the light. I beat him six long in the in the fourth set. What was the toughest thing for me was to to try to lead and uh, open up the lead so to end up the match more easily. What uh, it didn't happen. Serving for the match. Uh, 30 love or 30 15 something like this that I uh, still under control the I start to to feel very nervous I lose one two terrible shots put the ball two three meters out of the court and I was uh, desperate at the central court and uh, completely uh, out of control and uh, I, I always said I was very lucky because for me it's my serve I need to to come up with a, a big serve, I, I tossed the ball and I hit as uh, strong as I could. My arms were so tight that uh, what happened is the serve went slower than than should be. And, and Kafeunikov hit earlier and he hit the frame and he, he missed the, the ball. So this also needs to happen for me to win a tournament like that. You know, I, I need to to take advantage of some moments, particular lock, lucky shots. I, I need to come out from situations that uh, I didn't have potential to to deal with, but it, it did. It, it made true, David. My English doesn't have too much options, as you see. You know, I'm sorry about that. I wish I could express myself better, but uh, as you see, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going. To, to the, the back on time, I feel uh, my my uh, sensations, I smell, I, I hear the, the voices there, I see. That's uh, the massive emotions and uh, that moves uh, uh, tournaments like this and uh, also uh, special uh, moments as as uh, we leave it on, on 97 for, for the Roland Garros title. It's lovely to hear, your, hear the way you feel hear how much it means to you and how special it was for you. That's true, David. I'm here walking uh, like I did on the court. I feel myself sweating, <laughs> going out. Perhaps I will call Larry now. See, it's a long time. My heat is struggling a lot, but it feels like to go to, to the court to, uh, to have this, refresh these feelings. It's always good. So I hope you guys enjoy your... You understand what it means for us to be out there playing tennis, to to receive so much experience and uh, sentimental feelings that we, uh, because not only a, a brilliant capacity of a singular player, but because a, a tennis platform is amazing. The tournaments, as I told, Roland Garros and Wimbledon, uh, US Open, Australia, and they they got you to a stage that you it's so much love so much generosity uh, 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 ambience that is so nice it's fulfilled of uh, a great examples that we are very privileged we definitely understand that and uh, that's why for me it's always an opportunity to to somehow uh, give back to the people and let them know uh, try to get them close for what we are able to feel so uh, nice and so much feelings that we receive so we need to get these over the lines get these hopefully get to the hearts of uh, millions or billions of people 
I can guarantee you that you have definitely reached the hearts of millions of people. It's 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 really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> All right, David. Take care, my friend. Long time no see, and hopefully your program goes well, runs well. And also we have tennis back uh, properly uh, once uh, it uh, the, the times and the, the life give us the opportunity and uh, we will be ready. We will be ready. We oh. sure will. Oh. I, want, oh. I want to find someone that says my name the way Gustavo Quirton <laughs> says your name, David. I didn't know there was anything missing from my life before I listened to that interview. Honestly. No. Oh, <laughs> Turns dear. out Gustavo Quirton is missing from my life. Do you want know the hearing <laughs> that? It makes me think. It makes me think the others didn't stand a chance. Yeah. They're coming up against someone who plays as well as he does and cares as much as he does and has a connection as strong as he does. I was mesmerized by that interview, particularly that passage at the end where he basically says that he's sort of pacing around his whatever room he's in, sort of itching to to get those iconic yellow socks and black trainers back on and call up Larry Passos and say, I'm ready to go. Um, oh, goodness. I remember it was one of the great sadnesses of the Champions Tour that that he was unable to to play. There was a tournament in Sao Paulo for many years and later in, in Rio de Janeiro, and they were desperate to get him, play, get him to play Pedro, the, the tournament director of, of that tournament. And he he would have loved to, of course he would have loved to, but his hip just just wasn't up to it, just not up to even playing a, a single exhibition match, which which is a great great shame. But oh, I've still I've still got goosebumps. <laughs> I'm so yeah. jealous, David, that you got to do that interview. Well. I, I wasn't say? jealous at the time, but listening back to it, I was thinking <laughs> he could have been saying my name like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have it on tape forever. You'd go back to him. That wouldn't oh. be at all weird, would it? Could you just say the name <laughs> Catherine? <laughs> He'd probably do it. He'd probably do it. Don't put ideas oh. in my head. Dear, dear. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. 
Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So he ended up playing Sergio Bigera in the final and it was a pretty uneventful final because Curtin just absolutely thrashed him straight sets it was quite a surprise Brigera was the the two-time champion and certainly expected on paper to win this match but well let's hear from from Brigera about the experience uh, as he recalls it well the, the memories basically I was I was I was um, uh, su- surprised you know that, that that he arrived there I I I never met him I never never see him playing until you know that the, the, the Maybe in semifinals is the first time I see him playing, and uh, I didn't know what to expect. That also was always a problem with me. I prefer always when I play one guy already. I know his strengths, how he play. You know, try to develop the strategy. Sometimes I was surprised when he says, first time I play some, uh, one guy," and uh, and also you know the, the the main thing is I think I played very conservative because I thought, you know, maybe it was his first final, he would be nervous uh, and I, did, I didn't want to miss so much. I want to play very very secure and conservative and waiting for his mistakes that he didn't came, you know. He went for the match, he played unbelievable from the beginning. He was playing very aggressive, t- taking the ball very early and only I have one chance to change the the, 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 the match. It was 6-3-4 all and then I had 15-40. Maybe I, that year I, I arrived to the final but I was not, not playing well. I was winning because you know, it was me on clay five sets because I, I think I lost all, all all the matches the first set in in since the first round, and then I lost the first set and then I could change that that second set and maybe we change the match and then I can play better or and then relax and then one set all is completely another story than two sets to love. What made Gustavo such a great player at Roland Garros on clay? Well, I think he, he he was playing, you know, a little bit like like, like Courier. Was very very aggressive uh, uh, from from the baseline, but he was even moving a little bit better because he was very tall. You know, more more uh, um, uh, co- co- coverture of the field, and also backhand also was uh, as good as his forehand when he was taking so early, changing the directions. And also was very, very good serve, competitive mentally. He was very, very competitive player. And the way he connected with the crowd as well, was that something you were aware of when you were on, on the court with him, that sort of warmth of feeling towards him? No, no, because sometimes you play, you know, like a French player in French and in his uh, ten times worse, you know. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this is doesn't affect to the other players. I mean, it was uh, uh, he was loved because he's, he's an unbelievable, excellent guy. He's uh, charming. He's very nice. He's very funny. He's uh, uh, spontaneous. I mean, it's normal, you know. The 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 people love him. You know, I love him too. 
Oh. oh God, I've got to get in the queue to to have Google say my name, haven't I? Behind Sergi. Sergi's in love with him. <laughs> Oh dear! No wonder he couldn't beat him. Um, but, I mean, no, but I mean seriously, uh, Serge Bigari is a player that that I feel people didn't really know, and, and I didn't know him until really when he joined the Champions Tour. There was a brief period when I was at the ATP in ninety eight, ninety nine, when Bigari was still an active player, and and he 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 didn't really like doing interviews. He was he he preferred to keep a a low profile and I think he found the whole the whole lifestyle of the tour pretty stressful and there was definitely a period when he retired when he just didn't want to get on a plane at all he didn't want to travel anywhere and it's it's quite interesting now that he's a he's a traveling coach and and seems to have come through all of that when he joined the champions tour Catherine he was he was a very very different guy absolutely charming I mean you've you've had a lot of experiences of of, of dealing with him have you found Bruguera? completely different to the the Sergi that you described knowing from when he was on the main tour. I've ever, only ever known Champions Tour Bruguera and he's so completely laid back and seeing him in the, the, the 97 French Open final that we've just watched, I, I didn't know he used to look so clean cut and... Um, sort of straight-laced. I've only ever known sort of swarthy Sergi Bruguera. I've never seen him uh, clean-shaven. I've never seen him with short hair. Um, I've never seen him look so uptight. He looked stressed um, and tense throughout the, the whole match. I've never seen that before. He's always... he's. He's always been one of my absolute favourite players to, to deal with, professional but but incredibly warm we had uh, a, a pretty harrowing experience at a tournament in Chengdu uh, <laughs> once um, uh, and I'll always remember how um, how supportive uh, he was during that time we ended up stranded in a one-star hotel in Beijing together uh, not just the two of us Yvgeny <laughs> Kafelnikov was also there <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. Thomas Enquist. It was a strange time. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember a, a moment where I collapsed in, in a heap on in uh, of despair on the floor of uh, Beijing Airport. And he just sort of came over and said, it's going to be OK. And uh, we all went and got a McDonald's. I mean, the, just the warmth that the Bruguera had towards Curtin in those words at the end, it, it, it really is lovely. And, I, and I, I think that says it all, that everybody talked about Guga like that with, with, with affection, you know, and nobody didn't want him to win. Nobody was, was, had a problem with, with him coming through and upsetting the, the, the status quo, really. I suppose the people that, 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 uh, that he beat might have, might have been annoyed by it. But, I mean... There are so many iconic images from that tournament. I mean, as you you mentioned, his clothes, those sort of blue shoes with the yellow socks. And, and I mean, he is wearing the Brazilian flag, effectively. I mean, what an incredible state of affairs that that this guy that nobody's ever heard of, Diodora, just happens to to release a blue and a blue and yellow clothing line, which looks like the Brazilian football kit. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you're saying just there, uh, who I suppose his opponents uh, perhaps uh, didn't feel so warmly towards him. Well, in his 
I mean, he was already a completely faded force by this point, but he, he got a world card in, in 2008 to come back and, and, and literally just, just play a, a farewell match. I don't think he had any ambitions, ambitions of, uh, of even winning a, a round at Roland Garros. It was just so that he could, could have a farewell on his terms. And he was drawn to face Paul-Henri Mathieu in the Frenchman, of course, in the opening round. And Mathieu did, did beat him. And he said after the match, if I could have cheered Guga on, I would have done. <laughs> Which I think um, Does it sums all? up everything. Yeah. Mm. I love that idea of Quirton walking through the grounds in Roland Garros 97 at the start of the tournament, maybe in that iconic kit and no one having any idea who he is. And then two weeks later, everyone knowing who he is and you know, 20 years later now, everyone being able to recognise that kit immediately. I just love that journey from nobody to iconic tennis character, really. Um, and he did it all in those in those two weeks and obviously went on to to build on it. Um, but I was I was also just if I may just comment on his tennis in that final against Bruguera. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think in this whole Roland Garros tour that we've been doing, Quentin is the first guy who is taking these massive cuts at the ball and using topspin to push his opponent off the court completely with angles. And obviously now that's kind of the norm, but it's it's really struck me how this this match looks so different with his lavish, exuberant stroke production and pushing Breguer off the court and then injecting pace into the open court. And I guess I guess we should touch on the fact that he was using he was using different strings that nobody had um had known about before. He was using polyester strings. I think him and Albert Costa and Philip de Wolf, actually, who he beat in the semi-finals, were using those strings. Um, and they're now they're now what players use, and they just allow you to get that spin, that extra grip on the ball. And it was really a it's really a revolutionary moment in in tennis. I think possibly some people perhaps thought it was a bit wrong at the time, but if if he hadn't done it, someone would have done it because that's just the way the the way that the technology advances. Um, but, it, but it does look like he's from a different era to Bruguera. And it was, there was nothing undemocratic about using those strings. Anybody could have, could have mm. used them, right? It's just, you know, he, he, was, he beat a lot of them to, to the punch. So, yeah, it, it, that is a very good analysis, though. Different. They look like they're playing slightly different sports, Mm. Um, for periods of that final, both sort of mentally, emotionally, and and technically, mm. um. it was slightly before my time. It was slightly before all of our times in terms of being there to cover it. But one man that was there was Chris Clary from the New York Times, and it was one he will never forget. Well, that was my favorite memories of, of covering tennis. It was ninety seven, and that was a fantastic year of of French Open for me. I mean, I've been around just a bit long enough to appreciate how strange and wondrous that was. I mean, if I get that would have happened very early in my career, I probably would have gone, okay, this is great. But to have been through, you know, seeing more normal things happen, um, to see both both draws and singles go pear-shaped like they did with my Yoli winning on the women's side and just the upsets. And I feel like it's sort of like it's, a, it's kind of a – it's a contagious thing. 
doesn't always jump across draws like that, you know, men to woman. But in that case, it was just everywhere. And I think everybody started to believe in their possibilities. I think I've seen a couple of Wimbledons like that as well, where that happens and people just start to, okay, well, he's doing it. I can do it too. But I think, you know, Guga's thing was, he was such a, such an appealing character. He just was such a, you could just look at the guy and he, he just had this sort of elastic, almost like the bobblehead on the, on the, on the, the car you're driving with, the kind of bouncy all over the body kind of thing. You're driving along and they hit a pothole and he just bounces and just keeps on up there on your, on your car dashboard. And he just, he had that kind of loosey goosey look and he was hitting amazing shots. I and mean, I went back and watched some of that uh, final against Bruguera recently in the match against Muster earlier on. He's just ripping winners, you know, just, and I think that we didn't at the time know the whole story, which was that part of it was material. I don't know if you talked about that with, with you all when you spoke with him, but I mean, obviously the, the breakthrough to the polyester strings and he's one of the first guys to use them. And, uh, that obviously gave him an ability just to rip the ball with a greater margin for error than the guys he was playing against. And you do watch some of the shots he's hitting, like against Bruguera, who was a great clay court player, although not at his peak in 97. I mean, he just, it's like two different speeds almost in a way. Huh? Sergi's looping the ball and kind of moving along in the back, moving well in the clay. And then <clears throat> Guga just rips this thing with his one hander and elastic winner from an unusual angle. So I just, there was the way he was playing tennis, which was anything but dull. I thought, but then the whole story was incredible. I still remember what he was ranked. I, mean, I can't remember what happened to me last week. But I remember what he was ranked, 66, you know, when he came in there. And the two-star hotel and had never won a tournament. Um, I mean, he'd won, I guess, a challenger-level tournament, but never anything on the main tour. And I genuinely, I mean, I'd covered the game pretty closely. I really hadn't heard of the guy. And so to have a guy come in and win a tournament, beating the quality of the guys he, he beat, three former champions, um, and quite recent champions, um, Mr. Kafelnikov and Bruguera, uh, that to me was just was just giddy stuff for a journalist. You just couldn't wait to write the story each day, yeah. and I couldn't wait to wa- and I couldn't wait to watch his matches because it was just it just kept getting better. And you go, well, he's going to crack. And he's not going to be able to handle the pressure. Or he's going to get tired. He's playing five setters, and he just kept on doing it. And, and then he played really his best match in the final. Just took took Bruguera apart. Yeah, we, we we spoke to Sergi last week, and uh, and he said until the semi-finals, he'd never seen Guga play. <laughs> um, which yeah, incredible, isn't it? To think you know I'm about to play. I better go and watch this guy's semi-final because he's the guy I'm going to face. I've never heard of him before. But real, but really, I mean that word is overused, as we both know, right? In sports and everything, incredible. But really, for this guy to come in and beat the quality of the players that he beat, it wasn't just that he got a great draw and it opened up and he won. It was he got a he had a brutal draw. He beat them all. He beat them in style. And he had never done anything like that before. And it and the coolest thing about it really is it was no fluke. Because as you know, he went, went on to win two more times and hit number one. And he had good success on hard courts as well. So he was he was a great tennis player before his body broke down. But I mean, at the time, you knew none of that. And um, there have been other cases. And look at Ostapenko, who's I think a fine player. But we'll see how it all plays out. But she never won a tournament, wins the French Open. You know, we'll see how that all plays out. They got a guy like Volander who did the same thing. Worked out great for him. Obviously, the real deal. And I and I think Guga was the real deal too. But it was just, it was just, it was fun to go to work. It's always fun to go to work. But it was particularly fun to go to work for those two weeks. Yeah, 
I think that pretty much sums it up. And very interesting as well that Chris touches on what happened next because it wasn't just 1997. He backed it up. He won two more French Open titles in a in a tricky era of very, very high-quality players. And even then, Matt, I still feel like he could have done more if he, if his body hadn't deserted him. Because when I, when I joined the circuit, I, I remember being at tournaments where he would go through the most elaborate kind of rehab after a match for his hip in order to try to get ready for the next one. He would have to have a cool down. He would have to have all sorts of stretching routines because he had a really big problem with that hip. And sounds like from what he was saying that it still bothers him today, but you know, he, he wrote more, memorable chapters in tennis history in the years that would follow and it's really impressive that he did it because a large part of this story about 97 that we've talked about is that element of surprise and yet he didn't allow people to completely figure him out he went on and won more you know we see so many people who do get a little bit figured out but he obviously had a game that was good enough to go on and win more he um he won the French Open in 2000 when he won. He beat Magnus Norman in the final on his on his 11th match point, a 96-minute a, a fourth set, and he eventually got it on his 11th match point. I must, um, must go back and watch that at some point. And then he obviously backed it up again um, the year after. And I think maybe, maybe his biggest achievement, other than Roland Garros, was... He had, I think, 43 weeks at world number one, and he got the year-end number one. I don't know whether you were there or watched it, David, in Lisbon. I was. And I went to watch some of that, and he beat uh, Sampras and Agassi back-to-back in the semis and finals. The only person ever to do that on a on a fairly quick indoor court, transferred his game to that, to that arena. It's, it's kind of an amphitheatre feel with kind of a circular, the way the crowds are positioned around the court, it's quite tight and that's an exciting watch as well. And obviously being in Lisbon, he speaking their language, I think he really connected with the people there as well. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a testament to how good a player he was that he went on to do a lot more. I think it's probably the loudest I've ever heard a crowd while I've been on the court because I was setting up the the post-match live interviews for for Guga and the man he beat in the final, Andre Agassi, and he thrashed Agassi in the final that day. And Agassi was a big favourite to win that. That was right at the height of his his uh, resurgence. He'd already won the French Open and he'd he'd won the US Open and he he came in and in two thousand he'd won the Australian Open. He was a he, he was expected to win, as was Sampras, but the crowd. Both for both players separately, the ovations for those two players was just incredible. He was magnetic, Guga. I mean, I, I, I'd say, he, and it comes across in the way he spoke. He exudes joy. He gives. He gives you hope. He sees hope, and he gives you hope and, that things are possible. And what is it that Mary Carello always says? You can only achieve true fulfilment in something if you love doing it. And I think that's that's why. We, you know, he resonates so much because he clearly loved what he was doing, and it just therefore elevates all his achievements. Can I finish on the the words of Roger Federer Please. about uh, Gustavo Quirton? They they played quite a um, <laughs> an iconic match, I suppose, at, at Roland Garros in uh, in two thousand and four. Sadly, again, by this time, in in retrospect, Guga is 
is quite a faded force, but this is kind of described as his his last his last hurrah at the French Open, his last big moment. And Roger Federer was was world number one at the time. He had he had grown up on clay, you know. I think at this point in his mind, he hadn't been suffering those bruising defeats to to, to Nadal. Nadal hadn't won the French Open at that point. In his mind, he he was probably a French Open champion in waiting. Um, and he meets Roger Federer in in the third round, and it was a schooling for for Roger Federer four four and four for for Gustavo Quirton, and kind of looking back a number of years later, this is the way Roger Federer reflected on that when he said that was the match that made me realise that Roland Garros was going to be the most difficult tournament for me to win. That loss to Guga will stick in my memory. Up until then, I thought I was good on clay, but after my surprise loss, I realised I wasn't yet good enough. Quirton's thigh wasn't the best, and he was straight off of a five-set match, but I still lost in three sets. I was supposed to be the favourite, but he didn't give me a chance. He served well, made all his shots, won rallies. Gradually, I lost my legs and my confidence. Another thing that struck me was how much the public supported him. I lost that battle too. But it was all very sportsmanlike, just like Guga. In that sense, it was all, always a pleasure to play him. Yeah, I think Roger Federer speaks for for the tour, really, uh, there, and certainly speaks for everybody that's enjoyed watching him play. He, if if he won, everybody else won, and um, and it's just it was a treat to speak to him for this, and um, I'm really chuffed that he could join us. And I'm glad we we've had the chance to properly reflect on his. His moment and his his many moments, but 1997 in particular. For the next edition of Roland Garros Relived tomorrow and the next day, we're going back to 1999, which was another iconic year. We've got Steffi Graf up against Martina Hingis tomorrow, and then it's Andre Agassi against Andre Medvedev uh, in the day's edition following that. The, so that's your weekend to look forward to. The weekend on. that created tennis's greatest ever power couple. Well, that's also true, <laughs> Catherine. Yeah, very I've good point. I've spoiled the results there of those two matches. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think we're all right there <laughs> with this People concept. Don't know. That's on them. This happened 21 occurred, years ago. It, it occurred to me during our podcast yesterday that it was actually only minute 18 that we mentioned who won oh, God. that match between that Graf right? and Selish. And I was thinking, gosh, if anyone actually doesn't know, then they'll have the been drama. on the edge of their seats for 18 whole minutes. <laughs> it's quite, yeah. um, it's quite, Nice that it's fallen on a weekend because that is looked back on as one of the all-time great Grand Slam weekends, isn't it? 1999 French Open with two cracking mm. finals, one after the other. Often one on, one is much better than the other, but um, yeah, it's perfect. We're going to close our eyes and party like it's 1999. <laughs> Sure are, sure are. And we will post the links for those matches in our show notes for this show. So scroll down at the end of this uh, in a moment or so and you'll be able to watch those matches with us. And then we'll be producing two podcasts, one after each of them, on Saturday and Sunday. And all next week, we've got daily editions of Roland Garros Relived. Hope you're enjoying them. If you are, let everybody you know know about us and the tennis podcast send them the link on your whatsapp groups um and yeah leave us an itunes review if you haven't already but thanks for joining us so far we hope you've enjoyed week one and we'll bring you some more tomorrow (laughs) 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.